to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. So, uh, by a show of hands, who here got less than four hours of sleep last night? I didn't. I definitely got way more than four hours. I was in bed at 9.30, so I'm feeling good. You guys are feeling terrible. It's awesome. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sure some of you stayed up late. You know, it's fun to be around people, fun to hang out. Hopefully, uh, you can stay awake while I talk. Uh, You know, it's funny, as I've gotten older, I've gotten a little more uh, type A than I used to be. You know, back when I came to Fall Retreat as a student, I've alluded to my showering problem. I don't think I showered at Fall Retreat ever. I'm sure some of you have not. In fact, most of you haven't showered, to be my guest. Uh, but, you know, now the kind of guy I am, I showed up here, uh, I, I brought my own sheets because I don't want to touch their sheets, and I brought my own pillow because I don't want to touch their pillows. Uh, so I've changed a lot since I was in college. Now, you know, I'm kind of a clean guy, but I, I still have lots of great memories. One of my favorite uh, memories of a Veritas retreat was actually with Austin Connor. Um, I was lucky enough to get to share a room, not just a room, but share a bed with Austin Connor one night, and, uh, you know, he wakes up one morning, and I, I was out, and I'm eating breakfast and he comes out to me and he says, did I wake up on a different side of the bed than I fell asleep on? I'm like, yes. Yes, you did. And he goes, well, what happened? I go, well, in the middle of the night, you started trying to spoon me. And... (laughs) You know, so he's like sitting here and he keeps getting closer. And every time he gets close to me, I'm like, now, nah. and I get a little bit closer to the edge. And he gets closer again. And I'm getting closer and closer until finally, I mean, I'm literally, I'm on my side on the very edge of the bed. Austin's right there. And I just get up and I walk around to the other side of the bed and go to sleep there. He didn't, he didn't touch me again. So <laughs> we were good. Uh, that's one of my favorite fall retreat memories. Uh, so hopefully it didn't happen to anybody here. Um, so unrelated to Fall Retreat, one of my favorite things that we get to do in Columbia is the True False Film Festival. So if you're a freshman, you probably haven't heard of that. It, this is kind of cool. Uh, the largest documentary film festival in the country actually takes place right here or right there, wherever Columbia is, in Columbia, Missouri, uh, in March of every year. And so I've been going to True Falls for about 10 years now. It's one of my favorite times of the year. I call it hipster homecoming uh, because it's when all my hipster friends come back. They won't come back for real homecoming, but they'll come back for True Falls. Uh, so I always look forward to it. Uh, but one of my favorite documentaries that I've ever seen is a documentary called Buck. And Buck is a documentary about a guy named, go figure, Buck. But Buck is a horse breaker. Now, I grew up in the suburbs. I don't know anything about horses or farms or whatever else. But apparently, there are horses which need to be broken in so that they can be uh, ridden and used. Uh, so think about if you've ever seen a rodeo before, right? You know, the bucking bronco thing, trying to knock the, the rider off. It's those kinds of horses. And a horse breaker's job is to make them, them usable, right? To, 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 to make it so that you can ride the horse around. Because those horses are incredibly, incredibly dangerous. And if they don't get broken in, they're often put down because they're not uh, useful. And so the way a normal horsebreaker does it, they use violence, right? They kind of, they prod, they whip, they cajole, they yell. They, they, they break the horse into submission. It's where it'll finally do whatever it is they want 
you to do, but that doesn't work on every horse. And again, if that's it, then the horse is put down, unless, unless you know Buck. Because Buck is the greatest living horse breaker. Although honestly, horse whisperer is closer to the point. But the interesting thing about Buck is he doesn't use any of the normal methods to break horses. No violence, no whipping, no cajoling, no yelling. Do you wanna know what Buck uses to break in a horse? A whisper. A whisper. He uses a whisper. You see, Buck says he knows why these horses are, are so violent, why they're so dangerous. He said it's because they're afraid. At some point in their past, they experienced some sort of you know, abuse at human hands, maybe physical abuse, or maybe they were just left out in the elements. The point is, they're terrified. They're very afraid, and that's why they're so dangerous. And Buck says that he's able to see the fear. He knows it's there because of his own story. Because of his own story. He had a uh, verbally, physically abusive father who was an alcoholic. And Buck says that whenever he looks into a horse's eyes, I mean, this might sound crazy, but when you see what he does, it, it's real. When he looks into a horse's eyes, he says, I can see the fear. I can see, I can see the pain. And with a whisper, just talking to him, obviously the horse can't speak English, right? But I mean, he's talking to the horse. And with a whisper, he's able to say, I see your pain. I felt the same pain too. And your wounds are not going to be the last word on your reality. And with that little whisper, these horses, which previously have been violent, unrideable, they just change. They just change. He's able to connect with something. Last night we were talking about how our experiences shape our deep down heart view of who God is, right? Our experiences shape. We're often misshaped our view of who God is. And, and, and when we left Naomi at the end of the story where we left last night, it seems as though her wounds really are gonna be the last word on her reality. At least her reality with God, her view of who God is deep, deep down. And so the question was, yeah, our experiences, they shape our deep down heart theology, but is there any hope for, for having that refreshed, for having that renewed, for having that transformed so that what we believe about God is a true image of God, but it's also a fresh, a full of love vision of God? And I said, yes, I think it is possible, but the first step is honesty. The first step's honesty, and today I want to talk about the second step. Let's talk about that. We need to ask a question, the question that I think Naomi has to be asking is it possible for God to speak to us, to whisper to us right into our hearts? Is it possible for God with Naomi to take her in his hands and say, I see you, you're not alone, I have the same pain to you. Your wounds are not gonna be the last word on your reality. Can he do that for Naomi? And isn't that our question too? Can God look into my eyes? Can, can, can God look into my heart and can he say those things to me and can I know it and can I feel it and can I experience it? Isn't that what we all really want? I, I had a friend in college. We led Young Life together. And uh, his dad was a great guy, really, really great guy, awesome guy, follower of Jesus, taught his kids to follow Jesus, one of those kinds of people. Uh, but one day, he just stopped, just stopped following Jesus altogether. And this was really, I mean, it's really hard on my friend. And, uh, you know, he, he talked to his dad about it. And, and what had happened was his mom had been diagnosed with a pretty serious illness. And his dad said, look, I've done all these things for God and God gives me illness? No, like he needs to show up. He needs to heal her, but he never did. And so he said, you must not be real. And what his dad did was, because he wanted to know if God was there, he took a blank piece of paper and he framed it and he set it on his desk. And he said, God, if you're real, just write a note. 
just leave me a note. And then, then I'll know that you're there. And so my friend prayed and prayed and prayed, please God, just write the note for my dad, just let him know that you're there. Please just talk to him, whisper to him, please, please just talk to him. Nothing happens. I prayed for him, nothing happens, nothing happened. And finally, my friend had a realization, two realizations really. The first one was this, no matter if it ever actually happened, like let's say the note did appear, his dad would just justify it away. He'd be like, yeah, yeah, someone else did it. They, they wrote it down, like someone took the paper out. That's not real, right? But the second thing he realized, and this was the more interesting thing I think he realized, he realized that God doesn't normally speak that way. That's not actually how God usually speaks into our hearts and into our lives. And that can be really easy to miss if you read your Bible, right? Because we see these stories of God coming down, you know, in, in clouds of glory. He's thundering from Sinai. The ground is cracking open. And we think, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And if that's how God talks, I mean, I've not seen that. I don't expect to see that. And we can think that that's the normal way. That's the normal way that God talks. And we can forget that those stories of God speaking out of the glory and the thunder are very rare. They're very rare. They're often separated by centuries, even millennia from each other. In fact, the Bible's full of a lot more kinds of stories of God speaking the ordinary way into everyday people's lives. It's got all kinds of everyday stories. Everyday stories like the book of Ruth. And so the question is, does God speak to us? Can he whisper into my heart? And I think the answer is yes, God can't speak to you, but do you know how he speaks to you? Do you know how he whispers into your heart? Ruth's got the secret. He does it through the sacrificial love of others. Do you wanna know how God talks into your heart? He does it through the sacrificial love of others. I, I, I wanna pick up in Ruth too. And I want you to see, God has not left Naomi. She's not been abandoned. God is looking at her. And in this chapter, he is whispering to Naomi, I see you, I know your pain, you are not alone. Your wounds will not be the last word on your reality. Let's read in Ruth 2 together. And I'm just gonna pause throughout. and just I, I want you to see God whispering to Naomi, I'm with you, I'm with you. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Elimelech was Naomi's husband. You probably don't remember that because it was hailing, uh, but we'll keep going, uh, whose name was Boaz, okay? So she's got this relative. His name's Boaz. Uh, he was related to Naomi's husband. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after, who, after him in whose favor I shall find and she said to her, go, my daughter. Okay, so let's pause. What's gleaning? What are we talking about here, okay? So gleaning was an ancient practice. What would happen was harvesters would go through a field, and they'd collect everything they could, but inevitably things are left behind, right? And in the Bible, you're supposed to leave those things behind for the poor and for the destitute, and they would come through and take whatever was left behind in the field, and that was called gleaning. But right here in this story, we see God's first whisper of his love to Naomi. We see God's first whisper of his love to Naomi. You see, we don't know. Is Naomi just too distraught to go out and work or is she too old to go out and work? The point is she can't feed herself right now. And God whispers his love to Naomi in this through Ruth's industriousness. Ruth says, I'll go out. I'll work for you. I'll do the labor. I'll find your food. And through Ruth's sacrificial love, God's telling Naomi, I haven't forgotten you. I'll do the work for you. I'll get you the food. Don't worry, Naomi. Don't worry. I am with you. Let's keep reading. 
Verse three, so Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, that guy who was a relative of Naomi, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And right here we see a second whisper, but right now it's just in the everyday, ordinary coincidences of life. I mean, Ruth, she doesn't know who Boaz is. She doesn't know what he looks like. She doesn't know that he's related to Naomi. She doesn't know where he lives. And she just happens to end up in his field by God's providence. And again, we hear God whispering, Naomi, I've I've set a path before you. I am there for you. I am with you. I will not forget you. Let's keep reading. Verse four. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. I want to see you guys start doing that at fall retreat when you see each other, all right? I just want to say, hey, the Lord be with you. If someone does it, I'm going to feel really good about myself, but we'll see if it happens. Okay, and then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, well, you know, she's the, the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Now you might not catch it, but this is supposed to be a moment of high tension. Because in that world, you were supposed to let people glean, but they rarely did it. Why? Food scarcity, right? We we talk, people go hungry 60 days a year. So you can imagine that most people are saying, you know what, I don't need someone else coming back through my harvest. I need that food. My family needs that food. We're gonna go hungry if we don't have that food. I can't give it to you, I'm sorry. And so what ended up happening is when people would glean, oftentimes the landowners would use verbal, verbal, physical, emotional abuse to try and get them to leave, And so the question here is, what kind of man is Boaz? Is he a righteous man? Is he gonna follow God's law and let Ruth glean? Or is he gonna say, we don't have extras. We're already going hungry. We don't have extras for you. Let's see what happens. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or even leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged these young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. God whispers again right here through the sacrificial love of Boaz. He doesn't say, we don't have enough. He says, no, you can glean in my field. In fact, don't just glean in my field. Stay in my field. Don't go anywhere else. Stay close to my workers. Drink my water. We'll provide for you. Don't worry. We have everything for you here. And we hear God whispering his sacrificial love to Naomi. I will provide a place for you. I will provide extras for you. I will be there for you, Naomi. I haven't abandoned you. I haven't let you go. Whatever your experiences have told you. Story continues. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you've done for your mother-in-law, Naomi, since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And then at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. And so she sat beside the reapers and he he passed her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied, until she was full and she had some left over. 
And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from your bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Here's God's third whisper. He's saying, look, Naomi, I haven't just forgotten you and given you Ruth to work for you. I haven't uh, forgotten you and then given you Boaz you can provide. I will give you above and beyond. You will be satisfied. I mean, Ruth, she's got leftovers. She takes them home. She gives them to Naomi. Naomi eats until she's full. God is saying, I haven't forgotten you at all. I will give you everything you need. In fact, my love always goes beyond what you need. God whispers his love to Naomi through the sacrificial love of others. God whispers his love to you through the sacrificial love of others. God whispers his love to you through the sacrificial love of others. How has God spoken to you? How has God whispered his love to you through the sacrificial love of others? I shared last night a little bit about my own story, how you know, I, I had a tough relationship with my dad, didn't really feel welcomed at all by him, and sometimes put off, put out, and how that affected my relationship with God, that I felt like I was never really worthy of God, that God didn't want to be around me, that I wasn't welcome to his presence, that I could never be good enough for God. But something interesting happened. You see, there was this older guy, a kind of mentor figure, and uh, he started meeting up with me regularly, right? We started hanging out about once a week, and at first I thought it was like a duty thing because he was a Christian. I'm like, oh, yeah, you just, I'm like this young guy, and you're just doing the thing God tells you to do. You just got to meet with someone once a week, and so you're just doing it because you have to. There's no way you really want to hang out with me. But as years went on, I really began to realize, like, oh, my gosh, like this, this guy actually wants to spend time with me. And he didn't have the time to do it. I mean, he did not have time to, to, to spend an hour hanging out with a college student every week, but he just kept doing it over and over and over again. And I realized, like, you, you actually want this. Like, 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 you want to spend time with me. You care about me. You, you, you want to know me. And all of a sudden, something clicked. And I realized, God's like him. God wants to spend time with me. God wants to know me. God wants to be around me. His sacrificial love, years and hours and hours of spending time with me, through his sacrificial love, God whispered his true character to me. And my, my deep down heart vision of God suddenly was changed. God can change your deep down heart vision of God by whispering to you through the sacrificial love of others. I shared the story of that gal whose dad abandoned her at the DMV, and then she's a college student who thinks that all the responsibilities of the world are sitting on top of her, just like her dad put all of the responsibilities of the world on top of her, and she thinks that's what God wants her to do, that, that she's got to take responsibility for everyone and everything and do everything all the time, and then she burns out. But then something interesting happened. You see, she was a part of a small group, just an ordinary small group, nothing special about it, but the, 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 other, the other girls in that group, they really banded around her. And they said, you don't need to worry about us. You don't have to worry about us at all. We, we, we'll worry about you. They brought her meals. They listened to her cry. They, they spent time with her over and over. And in every possible way, they took up her burdens. They took care of her. They took responsibility for her. And then something clicked, and she realized, God's like that. God's the one who says, take, I'm, I'm asking you to take my burden God's the one who says, I'll take up your burden. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. And, and I won't just do it because I have to. I will love every moment of doing it for you. You're not responsible for the world. I am, and I'm responsible for you. And through their sacrificial love, God whispered, God whispered 
his sacrificial love to that girl. God whispered his sacrificial love to that girl. How is God whispering his sacrificial love to you? How is God whispering his sacrificial love to you? What about Naomi? What happens with her? I mean, she's in a tough spot. Is she gonna be able uh, to hear what God is saying to her through Ruth? Is she gonna be able to hear God's sacrificial love? This is Ruth 2.20. Catch what Naomi says. And, And think about how far we've come from what she said about God last night. Yahweh is against me. God is against me. He is not for me. He's brought calamity upon me. Now here in chapter two, verse 20. May he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord. Now catch what she says about the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. What's her theology now? God does not forsake the living or the dead. Just, who knows how long ago she's saying, God has forsaken me, God has forgotten me, just look at my experience. But now, because God has whispered his love through the love of Ruth and through the love of Boaz, and he said to Naomi, Naomi, I love you. I have not forsaken you. Your wounds are not gonna be the last word on your reality, Naomi. I will provide for you again and again and again and again. She hears through their sacrificial love the truth about God. She hears the truth about God. I have not forsaken you. And I think it's interesting that Naomi's actually able to hear this. The reason why is because it's really hard to hear God's sacrificial love and the love of others. Why? Because the bad stuff in our life is so loud, right? It's just, it's like the volume's cranked up. I was reading a management book recently, and it advised that a good manager should give five positive comments for every one negative comment they give. Five positive for every one negative comment. Why? Why do you think that is? Well, it's because the negative things in our life, the volume cranks up on them, right? The negative things, they feel really loud. The negative things are things you can't stop thinking about before you go to sleep, but the positive things, they just one ear out the other. They're quiet. They're really quiet. And so to match the volume of one negative thing, you gotta get five positive things. That's how loud these things are. And so the question is, we live in a broken world, and guess what? It's not a five-to-one ratio of, uh, of positive to negative. That's not our world. That's not the world we live in. And so how in the world can we crank up the volume on God's sacrificial love and turn down the volume on the negative things? How is that possible? That's the only way that we're gonna be able to change. We have to somehow figure a way of cranking down that volume and cranking up this volume. But here's the deal, Naomi did it, right? Something happened that allowed Naomi to hear God's love in Ruth and Boaz. What was it? Gratitude. Gratitude, right? Because Naomi, at this point, she doesn't expect anything. She expects nothing, nothing at all. And then, all of a sudden, Ruth's coming home, floated up. I mean, she, it's actually awesome. Ruth comes home with 60 pounds of grain. So uh, you want to talk about a strong woman. I can't carry 60 pounds from a field <laughs> to wherever uh, Naomi was at. But that's what happens. She comes home with 60 pounds of grain after the first. This is a ton of food. And she drops it. And Naomi is blown away. And you want to know why she's thankful? Because she didn't expect it. Because she didn't think she deserved it. Because she didn't think she was owed it. Do you want to know why I was able to hear God's sacrificial love and the love of that older guy mentor who, who spent so much time with me? Because I didn't think I deserved it. Because I didn't think that that would ever happen. And so when he did it, I was like, I can't believe that someone would do it. It was my gratitude, my thankfulness that allowed me to see God's sacrificial love. It's the same thing with that gal. She never expected anybody to take responsibility for her. 
She never expected it. She was always the one who took responsibility, but then she's got these friends, and they're taking responsibility for her, and she's thankful. She has gratitude, but she didn't expect it. If you want to hear God's sacrificial love for you, you've got to figure out a way to crank up the gratitude. That's the only way you're going to be able to do it. The, the sad reality is that right now we, we, we live in a moment where, you know, being snarky is funny and being cynical is smart. But snarkiness and cynicism are the opposite of gratitude. They're patterns and behaviors of thought that often make us totally unthankful. They make us complain. They make us judgmental. They make us think we're smarter than everyone and everything. It's the exact opposite of gratitude. How many business students do we have in here? Are you a business student? Raise your hand. All right, what, what's, what's ROI mean? We got any good business students? Return on investment, that's basics, right? Okay, return on investment. So if you're a business student, you know this, uh, you want to do things in your business that have a high return on investment, right? I put in a dollar, I get $100. I put in an hour, I get 40 hours of work, right? You wanna have a high return on whatever you invest. Do you wanna know one thing you can do that has a high ROI, a high return on investment in your life? Gratitude, gratitude. If you spend two minutes at the beginning of every morning, at the beginning of, at the end of every single day, just two minutes, being thankful, praying to God, at the end of the day saying, thank you God for this thing you did through this friend, through this person, seeing God's sacrificial love and the sacrificial of others, saying thank you God, I didn't deserve that, I wasn't owed that, thank you God. You do that at the end of the day. And if at the beginning of the day, you say, thank you, God, for what's coming before you, for, for what he set before you, if you can say, thank you, God. That is a high return on investment. It will crank up the volume on hearing God's voice and God's love in your life, and it will turn down the volume on the negative things. And if you don't believe me, studies show this. Thankful people are less anxious, they're less depressed, they're less lonely, and I, I don't have any studies on this, but I'm quite sure that if they're being thankful to God, they are closer to God. That's a high return on investment, isn't it? Be thankful. Remember what God has done in your life and you're gonna see him speak into that deep down heart theology. God whispers to you through the sacrificial love of others. How's he whispering to you right now? Whose love is he whispering through in your life? I opened with a horror story, so I'm gonna end with a horror story, okay? So here it goes. Uh, there's an old novel called War Horse. It was turned into a movie, but uh, in the novel War Horse, it's about this young boy, like maybe 10, 12 years old. His name's Albert, and Albert's got a, a tough life. His dad's an alcoholic, and uh, anyways, one day, his dad buys a plow horse named Joey, and, and it's Albert's responsibility on the farm to take care of the plow horse. He's the one who cleans it, grooms it, feeds it, and he works the plow horse. He's the one who plows with the plow horse. And over the years, Joey and, and Albert, so Albert's the boy, Joey's the horse, uh, but Albert and Joey, Joey they, they develop a really close relationship. I mean, they spend so much time together. They, they become really uh, connected and what, what, what summarizes that, that feeling, that feeling of home, that feeling of connection, that feeling of I'm not alone, is that Albert, he will sometimes do this special whistle. Okay? He does a special whistle. It's a whistle only Albert can do, and it's a whistle that, that Joey knows is Albert. It's a whistle that only Joey can recognize as Albert. And so whenever Albert would come out in the morning, he would do his special whistle, and Joey would come galloping to him every morning over and over because galloping back to Albert, that was like coming home again. The story goes on, and a few years pass, and World War I begins, and the English army, this takes place in England, they are, they're, they're buying war horses at a good cost, and Joey's father 
I'm sorry, Albert's father sells Joey. Albert's father sells Joey to the English army. And in the story, Albert's standing there. He's watching Joey get penned up, packed away, and then he's being carted off. And as Albert's watching Joey go away, he's doing that whistle, and he's doing it mournfully. But he knows there's no way for Joey to get free. He knows there's no way for Joey to come back. He knows that Joey's going to go to the front line, and that horse is probably going to die. And that was his best friend, and he's gone. A few more years pass of war. And Albert's finally old enough to enlist. And so he enlists and he goes to war. And on his very first mission, he, he's down in these trenches and there's a big explosion. And as a result, Albert is hospitalized. And so he's put inside of one of these World War I hospitals. And, and those hospitals, they weren't anything special. They were outdoor hospitals. They were dirty. They were dank. It, it, it wasn't great. But he's there and he's trying to recover. And, and one day he hears outside of the tent behind him, um, some officers arguing. And they're arguing because apparently there's this horse that got uh, caught up into some barbed wire. And now that the horse was free, one of the officers is saying, he, he's never gonna be able to walk again. We've, we've gotta put him down. We've gotta shoot him right here on the spot. And the other officer's saying, no, 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 we gotta keep him alive. We can't put him down. He could get better. And the other one's like, no, we gotta do it. We gotta do it. And, and as Albert is hearing this argument ensue, he's obviously thinking of Joey. Wondering where's Joey at? How did he probably end up dying. And in his grief and, and mourning, both for, for Joey and for himself, he, he starts doing the whistle. He hasn't done the whistle for years. He starts doing that whistle, remembering Joey. And the two officers, they stop talking because all of a sudden, the horse, it's kind of trying to get up. And Albert's in the tent and he can't see any of this, but he's sitting there and he's whistling. He's whistling all the louder and the horse finally starts kind of getting up on two feet, then onto four feet. And Albert's whistling and now the horse is kind of stumbling and falling over and stumbling and falling over. But he's making his way towards the tent and, and Albert, he's sitting in there, he's whistling, he's whistling louder. And then all of a sudden the horse is right there next to Albert's face. And Albert looks up and it's Joey. It's Joey. The officers see this and they're so struck and shocked that with a whistle he somehow called this horse back from death to life. They let him keep him and nurse him back to health. And at the end of the story, they both leave World War I alive and together. Do you know that's your story with Jesus? You were made for a relationship with Jesus. You were made knowing that, that whisper, that whistle that he's saying. It's a whisper, a whistle that only he can do. It's a whistle that only you can recognize. But you know when you hear him doing it, you were made for it. You were made to be with him. You were made to come to him. But something happened. We chose to rebel against him. We went off to war. We went off into this living hellscape, right? And all of a sudden, we're in war. We're separated from him. But here's the deal about Jesus. Jesus refused to give up. So he became a person in that war. And he came and he did it at the cost, not just of getting blown up in a trench. He did it at the cost of his life so that he could whistle to you, so that he could find you and call you back to himself, when you hear Jesus' love and the sacrificial love of others, it's like hearing that whistle. You just know it deep down in your heart. Yeah, I know that this person's loving me, but there's something deeper. There's something richer behind it. Jesus wants to whisper, wants to whistle, wants to call you back to himself so that he can bring you back to health, so that he can take you back home. Jesus is doing that right now in every person's life. Every person in this room, Jesus is doing it. He is calling to you. He is trying to bring you to himself. The question is, can we hear it? Can we hear it? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that it was us who ran away from you, us who have put ourselves in so many of the situations that have hurt us and destroyed us, and yet in many cases, that's not the case. It's been done to us, and wherever we're at in that journey, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would whisper your love to us through the sacrificial love of others. We pray that you would give us gratitude to, to be able to turn down the volume on the negative things in our life and turn up and crank up the volume on your sacrificial love. You pray that you would help us to be thankful at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day. But above all, we pray that right here, this weekend, we would hear your whisper. We'd hear that whistle, that song only you can do, that song only we can recognize. And when we hear it, we know it's you. We know it's you. We know we're being called home, back to healing, back to restoration, back to you. Jesus, whisper to us, sing to us, call us back to you in your love. Pray all these things. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.